0: All right. Well, again, I'm thrilled to be able to be with you guys again tonight. This was originally just going to be a one-week seminar on evangelism, and I just had so much information. I didn't want to just rush through or race through it. I wanted to take my time to provide clarity and then also to give you guys plenty of opportunity to ask any questions that you had in relation to this. And I know the last couple sessions have probably been about 45 minutes And there's probably been about 45 minutes of discussion, so you've had lots of questions. If you have any more, as I'm going through it, if you could just jot them down and we'll save those to the end, and hopefully we can address any questions you have. But basically we're dealing with the topic of faithful biblical evangelism. And if you weren't here for the previous two sessions, I basically said that what I want to do is just ask and then answer a number of different questions as it relates to this topic of evangelism. So far we've looked at the first four questions. Tonight we'll look at one more, and then Lord willing, not next time because we'll be at the Ecclesia Conference, but probably I guess a month from now, we'll look at the final installment of this seminar and evangelism training and those final couple questions. First question we asked is, what is evangelism? And we basically looked at several things that evangelism is not, and then we looked at what evangelism is, and we basically just defined it this way. He said evangelism essentially refers to the act of clearly and accurately communicating the gospel message, irrespective of the results. Second question we asked was what is the gospel? And in response to that question, we looked at two key passages that clearly address that issue, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, then we looked at a synopsis of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 4, and we essentially defined the gospel this way. We said that the gospel is a message of good news rooted in historical facts and centered upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, namely his substitutionary death for sinners, his or his substitutionary life, his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. And then we basically looked at how to succinctly share the gospel with others. We talked about four main points. Number one, starting with God the creator and man's accountability to him to live for the purpose for which God created him. Number two was moving from God the creator to man the sinner and the fact that he has rebelled against god his creator he's failed to live for the purpose for which god created him he stands justly condemned before a holy god who's inflexible in his justice there's nothing he can do to save himself because god requires perfection or punishment and once you have one blemish on your record there's nothing you can do to erase the blemish you can't just try to do enough good works to outweigh the bad one you'll never be perfect once you've failed once And so man's in a helpless, hopeless predicament, and this is where the gospel comes in. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel that God provided that help. He sent a perfect substitute to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, bearing the penalty of a broken law on the cross and then fulfilling the law in his perfect life, giving us a righteousness so that we can stand before god so you move from god the creator to man the sinner to christ the savior and then finally you see the necessary response of repentance and faith repenting meaning turning away from your sin due to a true hatred of sin itself and the offense that it is to god and trusting christ alone to save you namely his death bearing your sin and removing your guilt his life providing for you the righteousness that you don't deserve and could never earn and his resurrection validating that his person and work did indeed satisfy the demands of God's justice in your place. So that's really the gospel in a nutshell. Then we moved from the question, what is evangelism, what is the gospel, to who should share the gospel? And in response to that question, we said that every genuine born-again believer in Jesus Christ bears the responsibility of sharing the gospel with those in their sphere of influence. In other words, it's not just for a select few like pastors or people with the gift of evangelism or those who are more mature or more advanced in their faith or those who are more naturally outgoing or gregarious. No, every single believer has the responsibility of bearing witness to Christ. And we looked at several passages last time, namely the Great Commission in Matthew 28:18 to 20. We looked at Second Corinthians 5:17 to 21, where Paul says that we are ambassadors. That's why God left you here, to represent him, not to represent yourself. Not to build your own kingdom, advance your own kingdom, your own name, your own career, your own reputation. You were left here to be a representative of Jesus Christ, to be an ambassador for him. And then we also looked at 1 Peter 2.9. So we saw what is evangelism, what is the gospel, who should share the gospel. Then we looked forth at why we should share the gospel. What are the motivators, what are the reasons why we should share the gospel? And I'm just going to give you a bullet list here. You probably won't be able to jot them down, but I can give you my notes if you want. Number one, we evangelize because evangelism is obedience to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Number two, because we're impressed by what we've been given in the gospel, and therefore we desire to share it with others. Number three, because evangelism is a means to spreading the fame of God, second Corinthians 4:15. Number four, because evangelism is an opportunity to praise God for who He is and for what He's done. Number five, because we share God's heart for the lost. We looked at a number of different texts that God, that show that God's heart for lost sinners, six, we evangelize striving to win souls in light of standing before Christ in the judgment, second Corinthians five nine through eleven. Number seven, we evangelize because of the eternal destiny of the unbeliever. When you truly understand the horrors of hell, it should create within you a genuine compassion and desire to see people rescued from that plight, knowing that God rescued you and you didn't deserve it. You weren't more spiritual. You weren't better than those other people. It was surely grace that awakened you to your need and regenerated you, giving you the desire and the power to repent and believe and to trust and obey Christ. Eighth, we evangelize because evangelism is something that we're not going to be able to do when we get to heaven. It'll be too late then. Well, that leads us to the fifth question, namely, what are some of the typical hindrances to evangelism? In other words, what are some of the reasons why we don't share the gospel more faithfully and fervently and frequently, and how is it that we can overcome that? Well, typically, the primary reason is self-centeredness. We're just so self-absorbed and so self-consumed that we either don't see the great needs of the lost around us, or even worse, we do see them and we just don't care. Or we're just too busy and can't be bothered. Our lives, our schedules cannot be interrupted. Whatever I have to do is more important than rescuing that person from the horrors of eternal torment and seeing God eternally glorified in their life through salvation. It's essentially what we're saying. But Jesus calls us to love our neighbor as ourself, right? And one of the primary ways that we would love our neighbor as ourself is by sharing with them the greatest news they can ever hear. And he gives a classic illustration of this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I want you to turn there with me to Luke chapter 10 so you can see this. Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 25. (coughs) Verse 25. Notice Luke ten twenty five, and a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to them, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. <laughs> Well, realizing that there's no possible way that he could ever do that, he sought to justify himself, to weasel out of the command. Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, I love that, just by chance, what do you know? A priest was going down that road. Well, surely a religious man is going to stop and help this man, right? But shockingly, the text says, and when he saw him, notice the text explicitly says that he saw him and his great needs, so what did he do? The text says he intentionally passed by on the other side. He sees this man and his great needs, and he intentionally turns a deaf ear and a blind eye going to the other side of the street to pass by, not wanting to be inconvenienced in any way. The priest was probably thinking to himself, look, I've got to go preach a sermon on compassion. I don't have time to stop and help this guy. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, note, he saw him as well. And he also intentionally passed by on the other side. But, contrast, a Samaritan of all people was on a journey and came upon him. Now, if you remember, Samaritans were half breeds They were pagans who intermarried with Jews. And so Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated one another. Well, after the priest and the Levite intentionally ignored a Samaritan, of all people, comes upon him. And the text says, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Same language as Matthew nine thirty-six, which says about Jesus, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Well, notice that this compassion was not just some actionless emotion. Listen, true compassion compels us into action to meet the need of the person in distress. So notice we read in verse 34, And he, the Samaritan, came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Out of his own pocket, at great cost to himself, he's willing to serve this stranger in his needs. And so Jesus says in verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? He said the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. Folks, that should characterize our hearts as well. We who have been the recipients of God's incredible love and mercy in the gospel, think about it. Christ met our greatest need at the highest possible cost to himself. So that should be our heart as well to go to meet the needs of others, their greatest need at the highest possible cost to ourselves. How can we possibly be cold and calloused and indifferent knowing what God has done for us in the gospel at the cost of his own dear son's life? Rescuing us from the infinite and eternal horrors of hell and bringing us into the infinite and eternal glories of heaven. Christ left the glories of heaven... Where he was the object of worship and adoration for all eternity to come to this sin-cursed world and be the object of scorn and shame. And then to face the gruesomeness of the cross. And we won't leave our little comfort zones to share the gospel with others? I mean, are you kidding? How could we be so selfish in light of the selflessness that was shown to us in the gospel? Clearly we don't understand the gospel very well when he's willing to leave heaven to come to this world to do what he did on that cross and we won't leave our little comfort zone to go share the gospel with others. So one of the great hindrances and obstacles to faithfulness is self centeredness, self-absorption, self-consumption, so consumed with ourselves, our needs, our wants, our plans, our ambitions, our agendas that we typically don't even see the needs of others or sadly sometimes we see them and we just don't care to be inconvenienced in any way to meet them. This is going to take time. I might be rejected. This isn't going to be worth it. Can you imagine if that was Christ's attitude? This is going to take 33 years of my life. I don't have that time. I'm enjoying being worshipped here in heaven. I have to leave this beautiful place to come to that sin-stained world with those people? Put up with people like Peter and the rest of the disciples? I'm hanging out with the Trinity and the holy angels. I mean, can you imagine if that was Christ's mindset where we would be today? And yet so often that's our attitude, sadly, even as those who have been converted. Well, not only are we at times... So, I mean, the solution there is to meditate, to think about the gospel. And to plead with God that he would give you a heart of selflessness like that that you would deal with the selfishness in your own heart. Not only are we at times self-absorbed and self-contumed, but other times the fear of man paralyzes us from sharing the gospel with others, the fear of man. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. There's many texts that we could look at regarding this issue, but I think this is one of the classic passages. 1 Peter chapter 3. As you know, Peter is writing to believers scattered throughout Asia Minor who are suffering persecution. Notice he says in verse 13 of 1 Peter 3, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Notice in the second half of verse 14 that Peter gives his first commands here in this section. as he does, we see that the first thing he recognizes is that in the midst of opposition to the gospel, there's a temptation for us to be fearful. That's a very real temptation, isn't it? Though most of us would like to think of ourselves as bold and uncompromising and fearless in our witness for Christ, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we fear man more than we fear God. Sometimes we can be more concerned about what man thinks of us than what God thinks of us. Sometimes we love ourselves more than we love God's glory. Sometimes we care more about our own comfort and reputation than we do the eternal well-being of others around us. Sometimes we're more concerned about displeasing men than distrusting and disobeying God. Sometimes we're afraid to share the gospel with unbelieving co-workers or neighbors or family members or friends because we fear what they might think of us or what they might say about us or what they might do to us. We're afraid they might reject us, that we might lose their acceptance and approval, that we might they might make fun of us or think that we're strange or that we're Jesus freaks or... It might create some sort of uncomfortable tension in our relationships with them. And so we're given to fear rather than faith. More concerned about ourselves than their eternal souls, and we become cowardly compromisers rather than courageous Christians. I can remember vividly an example of this in my very own life. I used to work out at a gym up in West Palm before I moved down to Plantation here. And I was a member of the same gym for almost 10 years. So I got to meet a lot of the people in the gym and just got to share the gospel with quite a few people in there. But I just remember, uh, you know, God specifically putting people in my path where conversations were started. We would typically be talking about sports or strength and conditioning or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, I can remember standing there thinking, the Spirit of God would remind me that God specifically put this person in my path to be a witness for Christ, not to tell them how much I bench press or how much I squat or you know what kind of strength and conditioning training I did. That, that's not why God put me here. <laughs> I'm not an ambassador for myself to try to impress people, I'm an ambassador to Christ to represent him. And I can remember thinking to myself, you know, things are going well right now. If I try to turn the corner and share the gospel with this guy, he might think I'm a lunatic. He might not want to talk to me. He might go tell the other people in the gym that stay away from that guy. He's a Jesus freak or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, you know, the temptation to want to be liked, to want to be accepted, starts to, you know, create fear in your heart of sharing the gospel. None of us like to be rejected, right? We all want to be accepted. I could remember the wrestling match that was taking place in my heart, how fear would start to drown out faith, and how it would try to paralyze me from sharing the gospel. And how I would start to rationalize that now is probably not the best time, I don't want to interrupt this guy's set, or whatever it is. And that's the battle we all face, isn't it? We cower in fear of man. Will we cower in fear of man, or will we stand strong in faith in God? Now, obviously, we're not being threatened with imprisonment and death as Peter's readers were, but we do face the real threat of social rejection or mocking or scorn. We could be potentially passed over for a job or even fired from a job or given a lower grade in a class or ostracized by family members or friends or whatever it might be. So Peter says here in verse 14b, Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Don't be afraid, Peter says. Don't be intimidated. Don't be troubled. And the reason Peter commands us not to fear here relates back to verses 13 to 14a. You see, since no one can harm us ultimately, verse 13, and since even our suffering is a sign of God's blessing, verse 14a, then it follows that we shouldn't fear what others think of us or what others can do to us. And not only does Peter command his readers not to fear here, but as a good pastor, he provides them in verse 15 a specific way to overcome that fear. Notice he says in verse 14b, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But, in other words, in contrast to fearing your persecutors, he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, Peter says a part of overcoming fear involves sanctifying Christ as Lord of your heart, exchanging the fear of man for the fear of God. Now in this context, the word sanctify doesn't mean to make holy, but rather to regard or to treat as holy. Peter's using the word sanctify here the same way that Jesus uses it in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9, when he's taught us to hallow, same word, God's name, Treat God's name as holy. In other words, what Peter's saying here is that if we want to stand strong in the face of opposition, if we want to avoid cowering in fear, we must set Christ apart as Lord, as the Holy One. We must regard Him and treat Him as holy. In other words, we're to give Him the primary place of adoration, exaltation, and worship in our hearts. We're to revere and venerate Christ because He alone is Lord. I mean, think about this with me for a minute. All else is creation, Christ alone creates. All else begins, Christ alone always was. All else depends, Christ alone is self-sufficient. Therefore, everything that exists owes its existence to Christ, is contingent and dependent upon Christ, and therefore is less valuable than Christ. Including our persecutors, who are being held in being every second of every day by Christ. He's sovereign over their actions, over their wills, over their evil, over their sin, over what they can do to us. And therefore, we must never fear man. Rather, we must fear Christ. So Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set Christ apart in your hearts as the supreme object of affection and devotion. Enthrone him, worship him, recognize his unrivaled supremacy and sovereignty and lordship over all of life. Elevate Him in your hearts and minds so that He occupies the predominant and preeminent position in your thinking and living. There's to be a constant conscious recognition that Jesus is Lord, He's sovereign, He's ruling over all people and all things at all times. Live in such a way that it's clear that he's more precious and more valuable than anyone or anything else in this universe, that you cherish him above all other loves. Live in such a way that when people hear you and watch you, it's patently obvious that your hope is in someone or something other than what they're hoping in. It's to honor Christ, to reverence him, to hold him high. Practically to value his opinion more than the opinions of others. To unreservedly fear and trust him and his unfailing promises rather than listening to and fearing the threats of others. It's to hope in him alone and to never treat him as common or ordinary like you would a mere mortal human being. So Peter's point is that this truth ought to so grip our hearts that it completely eradicates the fear of man and produces an unshakable faith in Christ as Lord. So the only question is, are you living in a way that clearly demonstrates that you regard Christ as holy, as separate, as other? That you fear Him and reverence Him and truly tremble before the majesty of His holiness? Or has He become diminished in your mind, in your thinking? Have you elevated other things or other people above Him in terms of their importance? Do you value his opinion more than the opinions of others? Do you trust his promises more than the threats of others? What they can do to you, what they can say about you, what they'll think about you. You may say, well, what does this have to do with me overcoming fear and standing strong? Well, in verse 14b, when Peter says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, he's actually quoting from Isaiah 8. Verses 12 to 13. And so listen to what the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah eight, twelve, and 13. He says, you are to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, he shall be your dread. And what's going on here in Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 13, is that the southern kingdom of Judah was being threatened by the northern kingdom of Israel and Aram. But Isaiah promised that the Lord would preserve Judah. And so what the Lord is saying is that Judah should not fear her enemies, but rather she should fear God. She should put her trust in him alone. In other words, the antidote to the fear of man is to fear God and to trust in him. And So here in 1 Peter 3, Peter takes this text, alludes to part of it, and then draws upon this principle and uses it in his own context because his point is rather than fearing the intimidation of the unbelieving Roman world around you, you should instead sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and not only live in obedience to him but also trust in him as the sovereign God and king who will provide protection in the midst of this kind of opposition. Peter's saying, fear him and trust him alone. And so Peter's point here is that the alternative to fear is faith. It's to focus less on the ones who are persecuting you and instead to trust in the one who's protecting you. One commentator said, quote, To reverence Christ as Lord means to really believe that Christ, not one's human opponents, is truly in control of events. To have such reverence in your hearts is to maintain continually a deep-seated inward confidence in Christ as reigning Lord and King who even now has angels, authorities, and powers subject to him, end quote, as 1 Peter 3.22 tells us. And so within submission to the lordship of Christ, there's an element not only of obedience but of trust, the kind of trust that drowns out and conquers fear. And so the alternative to fearing man is hallowing Christ. That's what emboldens us and glorifies Him. When people see that our hope, our trust, our confidence is not in anyone or anything except for Christ, they become curious. They begin to ask for the reason, for the hope that is in us. So the alternative to fear is to hallow Christ, to hope in Him alone, to trust in Him alone. That honors Christ because it shows that our hope is unshakable Unlike the hope of everyone else around us. Some of you might be saying at this point, well, who in the world does Peter think he is to tell us not to fear? I mean, he's the one who boasted that though others might fall away, he would never fall. And yet he cowered before a poor little slave girl denying his Lord and Master three times. Well, thankfully, like a tender shepherd, Jesus restored Peter after his resurrection in John 21 fulfilling his words in luke 22 31 and 32 you remember what jesus said to peter simon simon behold satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat but i've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you once you have turned again strengthen your brothers and so what's peter doing here in 1 peter three he's strengthening his brothers He's feeding Christ's sheep. He's preparing the church not simply to endure persecution, but to be bold witnesses for Christ in the midst of this persecution. And of all people, Peter knows that both the boldness and humility needed for witness come through a fundamental exchange, namely exchanging the fear of man for the fear of the Lord. This is the biblical prescription for boldness, and Peter had discovered it through great personal failure, right? You see, while Peter was waiting in the courtyard of the high priest's house, during his lord and master's interrogation, Peter had failed miserably. Rembrandt's painting captures the scene. Peter has just denied Christ for the third time, swearing with faithful oaths that he is not a disciple of Christ, that he had not been with him, and that he didn't even know the man. And in the background, shadow stands Jesus, who had just turned to look at Peter, who eventually went out and wept bitterly over his failure. Peter had loved himself more than he had loved Christ. He had feared man more than he feared God. Now contrast that scene with Peter in the book of Acts. Filled with the Holy Spirit as the apostle of the risen Christ, He's no longer huddled by the fire in the outer courtyard. Now he's the accused, and he stands before the same tribunal that had interrogated Jesus. The one who had feared to confront a maidservant now confronts the high court as he accuses them of crucifying Jesus and refuses their order to be silent. In Acts Acts 4.13, we read, Now, as they observed the confidence or boldness of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You see, when you truly know Christ and spend time with Christ, he's actually real, he's actually the living Lord to you. It produces a holy boldness that is otherworldly, he's not just a concept in a book or a theology book. He's real. You enjoy vital communion with the living Lord of glory. That's what he enjoyed. That's what he knew. And there was a boldness that wouldn't stop him irrespective of the threats of these people. In Acts four nineteen and 20, we read, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We are so convinced of these realities. Jesus is so real to us that we can't stop speaking about this. It doesn't matter what you do to us. Peter says in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. See, Peter had overcome the fear of man by gaining a true knowledge of and a true fear of the risen Lord. He had set Christ apart as Lord in his heart. Yes, Peter knew the meaning of fear. He remembered the panic that had unmanned him when he was by the fire in the courtyard. He was recognized as a Galilean. His accent had given him away. But Peter also knew the prescription and secret of boldness that conquers fear, namely exchanging the fear of man for the fear of the Lord. He remembered the words of his master in Matthew ten twenty-eight: Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus followed that solemn and sober warning with words of supreme assurance, telling his disciples that their heavenly father has numbered every hair on their head and nothing can happen to them outside of his care. God says in Isaiah 51, verses 12 to 14, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you were afraid of man? Which, this relative clause describing man, or, or watch this relative clause describing man, he says, why are you afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? that you have forgotten Yahweh, your maker. And then he gives this relative clause describing Yahweh, or God, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor. And he makes ready to destroy, but where is the fury of the oppressor? Thus says your Lord, verse 22, the Lord even your God, and now we have this relative clause describing God, who contends for his people. So God says through the prophet Isaiah there in Isaiah 51, why, why do you fear man? I mean, stop and think of the absurdity of this for a minute. It's basically what God is saying through Isaiah. This is man who dies. This is man who's made like grass. He's here one minute and he's gone the next. And yet somehow you fear him and revere him. And you've actually gone and you've forgotten me, the Lord, Yahweh, the sovereign, self-existent, self-sufficient one. The one who has no needs that you could ever supply, no lack that you could ever fill? The one who depends on no one and nothing, and yet absolutely everyone and everything is completely dependent upon me for life and breath and all things? I am Yahweh, the Lord, your maker, your creator, the one who gave you life, and the one who sustains your life every second of every day. I'm the one who stretched out the entire heavens like you would stretch out curtains across a curtain rod. I'm the one who laid the foundations of the entire earth as though it were child's play. Remember, it's me that contends for you, verse 22. And so how could you possibly go and fear mere mortal creatures and forget me, your sovereign creator? It's really unthinkable, and yet how often do we do that very thing, right? Right? Fearing man rather than fearing God. More concerned with displeasing man than distrusting God. And it paralyzes our evangelistic efforts and glues our lips shut. God says in Isaiah 2, verse 22, Stop regarding man, and then he gives this relative clause describing man, whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? For what account is he? Why are you impressed with him? Why are you afraid of him? The logic is so simple. So it all comes back to renewing our minds with the truth of who God is as the infinite, eternal creator, and who man is as the finite, temporal creature. We need to be more focused on the one protecting us than the ones persecuting us. We need to remember as Proverbs 29:25 says the fear of man brings a snare but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Proverbs 14:26 in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. I said we need to come to that place where we can honestly say I'm standing firm and I'm not budging because I'm not ashamed of Christ and the gospel. And yet how often do we cower like Peter did before that little inconsequential slave girl, denying Christ to protect and preserve himself? How often do we soft-pedal the gospel and compromise and capitulate regarding the truth to avoid tension in relationships and the disapproval of others, like Peter did in Galatians 2, because the circumcision party more concerned about ourselves and the idolatry of attention-free, trouble-free, trial-free, comfort-filled life, caring more about the approval of man than the approval of God, caring more about being liked by others than being faithful to God, caring more about ourselves and our comfort and our convenience than the glory of God and the eternal good of others who are headed to hell without Christ. Listen, it's the fear of God that drives away the fear of man. When you truly tremble before God and His Word, you won't tremble before man. It doesn't matter if man strips you of your dignity or even of your very life. As Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So let me ask you a question Who is it that you fear tonight? God or man? Whose opinion do you value more, God's or man's? Who do you love more, yourself or God in his glory? What do you care more about, your own comfort and reputation and convenience or the eternal well-being of other people? Peter says if we're going to be bold in our witness, we must exchange the fear of man for the fear of God. We must crown Christ as Lord in our hearts. And as we do that, notice what he says in verse 15, 1 Peter 3:15. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. You see, if we truly set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, fearing God more than we fear people, people will certainly start to take notice. And they'll be inclined to ask us for the reason for the hope that lies within us because clearly we're hoping in something radically different than they are. Peter says we should have such hope amid all the hopelessness around us that it causes others to inquire, to ask about it. He says our hope should be a truly biblical hope. In other words, it should be in Christ and the consummation of our salvation when he returns, and not in anything in this world like it is for most people. You see, most people are hoping in career, hoping in relationships, hoping in finances, hoping in looks, hoping in all kinds of different things. And when those things don't come through, their hope is dashed and they walk around hopeless. As Christians, we have a living hope and a lasting inheritance that cannot be touched or taken by the circumstances of this life. So our hope should not fluctuate ever. If we're actually thinking about and meditating upon and appropriating that hope by faith, and that's what we're truly hoping in. And so when everything comes crashing down around you, you lose your job, you lose your house, you lose your car, you lose your money, you lose your relationship, you lose that loved one and yet you're still filled with joy, you're still filled with hope, people are going to start to ask you, what in the world is going on with you? You're hoping in something radically different than I'm hoping in, because if I was in those circumstances, I would not have hope, I would not have joy. I would be bitter, I'd be self-pitying, I'd be miserable, I'd be complaining and murmuring, discontented, dissatisfied. And really, the whole book of First Peter lays out this hope for us. So Peter says, when they ask, we always need to be ready, prepared to clearly articulate our great gospel hope to them. We're not simply to tell them that we're a Christian or that we go to church or that we cleaned up our life through some moral efforts of our own. We're to tell them about the living resurrection hope that we have as a result of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Where he, as the God-man, lived the sinless life for us that we could never live and died the substitutionary death for us that we could never die. Rising again on our behalf to vindicate his claims and to validate that his life did indeed satisfy the demands of God's justice or God's law in our place and that his death satisfied the demands of God's justice in our place. And that through repentance and faith in Christ alone, we're saved from the eternal wrath of God and the guilt and penalty of our sin. We've also been saved from the enslaving power of our sin, so that we now have the desire and power to obey Christ and to live for the purpose for which God created us to live. We're no longer in bondage and slavery to our fallen lusts and desires, to a life of selfishness. And when Christ returns, we'll be fully and finally emancipated from the presence of sin, both from within us and from all around us. As we're eventually dwelling in a new heavens and a new earth with redeemed, sinless, glorified bodies. Dwelling in the intimate and immediate presence of God, beholding the infinite beauty of His manifold perfections and worshiping and serving Him forever. That's our great gospel hope. So let me ask you, is anyone asking you for the reason for the hope that lies within you? How many of you are ready right now to share your great gospel hope? If I were to call on you and ask you to come forward tonight and ask you for the reason for the hope that lies within you, are you confident that you could give a clear, comprehensive, and thoroughly biblical presentation of your great gospel hope? How many of you would be fearful that if I called on you? Not because you don't like public speaking, but because you're not ready. You don't know the gospel. How many times have you squandered opportunities to share the gospel with others because you were unprepared or terrified of what others would think of you? Living in bondage to their opinions and enslaved to their approval. Remember, folks, Christ is Lord, not what other people think or say or do to you. So Peter says we must continually be ready to share the hope of the gospel with others. What are the reasons we typically don't? Well, first we said is because of self-centeredness. We're self-absorbed and self-consumed, unable to even see the needs of others around us or perhaps we do see them and we're just indifferent or we're too busy or we're unwilling to be inconvenienced to stop and to meet them by sharing the gospel with these people who are headed for a Christless eternity. Second, because we fear man. We're so centered and so concerned and so consumed with what others will think about us or say about us or do to us Or we fear the uncomfortable tension it might bring in relationships. Fearing man more than God. More concerned about ourselves than God's glory and the eternal salvation of sinners. Third, because we're ill-equipped and ill-prepared. We don't know the gospel and as a result we're not able to share it clearly and cogently and comprehensively and confidently and compellingly. And so we shy away from sharing the gospel with others. Let me briefly give you two more reasons why we typically fail to be more faithful. The fourth one is this, because we lack true conviction in the truth of the gospel. We lack true conviction in the truth of the gospel. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4 so you can see this. i me going to start in verse 1. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, 2 Corinthians 4.1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, that is the new covenant ministry that he just talked about in chapter 3, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You see, false apostles had crept into the church at Corinth and were basically impugning Paul's character in ministry. Essentially saying, Paul, you're a deficient messenger who brings a deficient message. Because if you were a legitimate messenger with a legitimate message, more people would be getting saved. God's covenant people, Israel, the Jews wouldn't be hardened to the gospel like we just talked about in chapter 3. Paul says, look, the problem is not with me or with my message. The problem lies with the hearts of fallen men and the fact that Satan has blinded them to the truth. Verse 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves like you false apostles do, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bond slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said let light shine out of darkness, speaking in the original creation in Genesis 1.1 God said, Let there be light, and what happened? Boom, it flooded with light. Is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That, that's speaking of the new creation. Regeneration, Just like God originally said, let there be light in the original creation, and light flooded this creation. When the gospel came, God turned the light switch on, and their darkened minds and hardened hearts were now enlightened and illumined to see the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. He says, verse 7, we have this treasure, this treasure of the gospel, in earthen vessels, in these decaying bodies interesting he says the treasure is in the gospel not in the messenger it's like when you go and you buy your wife beautiful flowers and you put them in some dispensable disposable little vase just say wow look at that vase this says, wow look at those flowers the flowers are what is impressive not the little disposable vase paul says it's the same thing people shouldn't be impressed with us they should be impressed with this message Of salvation. He says the reason is so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And now listen to how Paul describes the difficulty and challenges he faced as he sought to bring this gospel to others. Verse 8 We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of jesus so that the life of jesus also may be manifested in our body for he who for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for jesus sake so that the life of jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh so death works in us but life in you now the obvious question is this what in the world motivates someone to boldly and persistently preach the gospel knowing that wherever they go to open their mouths to preach the gospel, they're going to be beaten, they're going to be opposed, they're possibly going to be thrown into prison. I mean, if you went out and did street evangelism in downtown Fort Lauderdale on Las Olas and you got beaten, you were violently opposed by a mob of people You'd probably have great fear and trepidation about going out and opening your mouth next time, wouldn't you? Probably say, I'm packing it in. I'm done evangelizing. Well, imagine if you went out and every time you did that, that happened to you. That's virtually the life of the Apostle Paul. And so my question is, what in the world is it that can motivate a man to keep on preaching the gospel, to keep on persevering, that cannot keep his mouth shut, that he has to preach this gospel knowing that that's what's going to happen to him? I'm always caring about the dying of Christ in my body. My outer man is decaying. I mean, where does that kind of boldness come from? What is it that compels a man? Look at verse 13. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, he quotes Psalm 116, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. I believed, and therefore I spoke. That's conviction, folks. Such deep and abiding conviction and belief and confidence in the truth that you're willing not only to live for it, but even to die for it. And thus you're continually compelled to share it with others because with every fiber of your being, you believe in the veracity and truthfulness of this gospel message and the need for perishing sinners to hear it. That they will perish without this gospel. I mean, if you saw someone in a burning building, would you just sit there and watch it burn? you probably scream out to them. Tell them, come out, it's on fire, get out of there. Screaming for their rescue because you were so convinced that if they didn't, they were going to go up in flames in that building. And yet that same reality is true of unrepentant sinners. Except they're never going to go out of existence. They're going to be consciously being tormented forever in the flames of hell. And we have the divine antidote to rescue them. It's the gospel. And yet I'm not sure that we believe that with deep and abiding conviction. Because if we did, like Paul, we'd be compelled to continually tell others about the gospel. Knowing that it alone can save them. That it alone is the means of spreading the fame of God. Notice what Paul says in verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. In other words, Paul says, knowing that even if I die in the process of proclaiming this great gospel message due to persecution, I know that I'm getting a new body. I'm going to be raised from the dead one day. This body is dispensable. It's disposable. It's not about me. I got a new one coming. And so I'm going to spend myself in this life for the gospel because I have such deep conviction in this truth. I believed, and therefore I spoke. And no amount of beatings and stonings was going to shut my mouth. And he says, verse 15, For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart though our outer man is decaying and our inner man is being renewed day by day by that reality. The fact that as I go out and share the gospel even if I'm beaten the more people that come to Christ that start to lift their voices and thanksgiving to praise the more glory goes to God. And so while my outer man is, being deca- is decaying my inner man is being renewed and strengthened by that reality. And so it compels me and motivates me to keep going. That's conviction folks. Truth that I really believe that I'm willing to live for and even to die for. That it actually compels change and transformation in my life. It causes me to lift my voice. Well, lastly and quickly, number five, fifth reason why we don't more faithfully share the gospel. Not only because we're self-absorbed, not only because we fear man, not only because we're unprepared, not only because we lack true conviction, but because of unconfessed or unrepentant sin in our lives because of unconfessed or unrepentant sin in our lives. Nothing will silence us quicker than a guilty conscience. You see, guilt often acts like glue. It seals shut the mouth of witness. It destroys our proclamation, our evangelism. Psalm 51, verses 13 and 19, is that great confession of David, right? Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And in verse 13, David says, Then, after I... Forgive me, O oh God. He's asking for forgiveness. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Basically, my conscience has shamed me into silence. Right now my lips are sealed because of my sin. Forgive me and recreate my heart and open my mouth and I will surrender my voice to you. Then I will witness to others and worship you, God. You see, the truly forgiven sinner is overwhelmed by forgiveness and just can't stop talking about it they want to tell other sinners about it so that they too might benefit from what's happened to them that they too might experience the same forgiveness they've experienced and worship and praise the same great god but you see when we're living in sin we feel guilty and we feel hypocritical and we're prone to be silent aren't we the last thing you want to do is go tell someone about this great powerful gospel that's not transforming your life you're still living for sin you're still living for self Than the savior who you're proclaiming is so great so if we want to be bold and witness not living perfect lives but we are keeping short accounts with sin well there's five reasons why we typically don't share the gospel more faithfully may the lord help us to identify those and to deal with those biblically so that we would be strengthened and emboldened for more faithful and fervent witness. Let's pray, and then we'll take some questions. Father, again, we can all identify with all of those. No doubt at points in our life we've been self-absorbed and self-consumed, not even seeing needs or seeing them. We didn't want to be inconvenienced to meet them. Even knowing you put unbelievers in our path for that specific reason, we were more concerned with ourself and our agenda and our timetable and plans and didn't want to be interrupted or because we fear man. We're so concerned and consumed with what others think about us rather than what you think. Less concerned about their soul and their plight and your glory than we are our comfort. And Lord, at times we would confess that we haven't been noble Bereans, we haven't been diligent workmen, so we don't know the gospel, and we're not able to clearly articulate it. Help us to grow in that. Help us to study that. Help us to ask people who know the gospel to help us to grow in our ability to understand it, apply it, and then communicate it. And Lord, help us to grow in our conviction and the truth, so that like Paul, no matter what came our way, we would be compelled to keep sharing it. And finally, Lord, help us to deal with sin in our lives that we would keep short accounts so that our consciences would be clean and clear before you and that there would be a boldness in our witness to others. Or we recognize that only you can produce these realities in our lives, so we're asking you to do it. We're asking you to get great glory from it as a result. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Any questions that you have in regards to What you heard tonight, or just evangelism in general? Sarah? Well, I
1: kind of had, I mean, the situation that comes to mind is when I was studying at the bar, I was over at the Melbourne Law Library, and I studied with one girl in particular, like six to eight hours a day. Yeah, I
0: mean, obviously, you know, you bring up a situation, obviously, you're studying there. Other situations, people are at work and stuff like that, and I'm going to talk about this next time. It's like, that was a little bit different than a work situation where you'd probably be stealing from your employer to be, you know, wasting time there. I mean, there you're on leisure time where you're studying and stuff like that. And, um, I mean, I don't have anything particular. As I mentioned in some of the other ones, is just constantly praying. For opportunities before we even leave our home. I think sometimes we're just in such a rush, we're so consumed with what we're doing. I, I would try to get in the habit of just praying before you leave if you're going to work that day or you're going to study that day about Lord help me to be salt and light in this arena, in the library, in terms of who I come across, help me to be an ambassador today. When you're praying for those things you're typically more keen to those opportunities and then when you're keen to those opportunities kind of like you were I would just be praying, Lord, help me to find a transition here that would be natural and help me to be, you know, bold and yet winsome and gracious and deal with any fear of man or whatever the issues would be that prevent me, help me to be more concerned with this girl's eternal salvation than whether I pass this exam or not, which is so trite in the, in the grand scheme of things when I have an opportunity to, you know, lead a sinner to Christ here and just dealing with my own heart and then just looking for opportunities and trying to be proactive and intentional in terms of um, just the way I go about them. So typically I'm trying to gauge in my relationships, is this gonna be a long-term relationship where I have a coworker where unless I get fired or they get fired or something happens or I get transferred or something, I'm probably gonna have quite a bit of time with them. Well then I'm probably gonna look for the most opportune or strategic time to do that, hey, can we go out to lunch today or something like that, where she's not distracted with her studying or whatever it is, and so, you know, then I'm going to probably try to seize that. If I'm in a situation where I don't know if I'm going to have as much time, that's when I'm typically trying to be more direct and just getting right into the gospel. Because there's this whole theory today that, hey, you have to develop a a relationship before you can share the gospel. Or, hey, we, we can't just go into third world countries. We need to give them, you know, clean drinking water or food before we can share the gospel and show them that we love them rather than just preaching at them. that wasn't Paul's model at all he just went into the synagogue and he started preaching the gospel not that he was insensitive to people or relationships and stuff like that but I don't buy into that philosophy one iota because it's not scriptural so if I have a providential relationship like that and I know hey this might be the only time I see this particular person then I'm probably going to try to get be a bit more direct and just kind of get a straight line to the gospel hey have you ever had anybody share, you know, have you ever heard a clear presentation of the gospel? You know, would you mind if I shared that with you for five minutes and just kind of launch into the gospel and she may say, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom or something. She's gonna reject you or she may ask questions. I don't know what's gonna happen, but if I know I've only got limited time, I'm probably gonna be more direct in trying to actually articulate the gospel clearly in some way in that context. Like, if I'm on an airplane, chances are I'm never gonna see that person again, so I'm gonna try to get to the gospel. If I'm working with somebody, then I'm gonna probably look for the best time. So I, I'm not gonna feel burdened if I didn't share it this particular day. I know I've got other days. I don't want to make excuses or de- not deal with hard idolatries and make justifications or rationalizations. But in long-term relationships with family or st- something like that, I may not take the same approach per se. Does that make sense? uh uh-huh. Those are typically yeah, those are typically subjectively derived things if he's not giving me the opportunity or he is and I've been reading, you know, Kirk Youngblood's book, Free to Be Wise on Biblical Decision Making. It's very helpful. I'm gonna to try to teach it at some point. I don't know what venue, Sunday school or the main service, but it's just got really good principles on discerning the will of God and it's a little bit different topic, but he deals with a lot of the subjective aspect. I wouldn't know if God didn't give me an opportunity I never really I, I never really tried to take it per se. I probably could have been a little bit more intentional. I guess the or straight was that I had a friendship with her and maybe that maybe that was the opportunity.
1: I mean I guess I was waiting for the opportunity in the conversation. Uh uh-huh. so yeah. I
0: guess it was subjective. Yeah. And I'm not going to say, hey, you know, her, you know, like some people would say, hey, her blood is on your head. And, you know, like they go to Ezekiel 33 and misinterpret the passage. I mean, I've heard people say this, like, hey, you know, her blood is on your head now. If they didn't get saved, you had the opportunity and you didn't take it. And, you know, Ezekiel was the watchman in Israel. And if he didn't share the gospel, that's a totally different context where. Yeah, oftentimes it is. I mean, the goal should be to live a godly life before people and to try to seize and take advantage of every opportunity that God providentially brings our way. You're not going to have an opportunity in every situation to share the gospel, but the, goal, the, the issue is do I desire to and am I looking to and am I dealing with the hard issues that would hinder me or preclude me from doing that? And am I genuinely repenting when I fail? Because of sinful things in my heart, and am I trying to grow and repent and change and trying to seize opportunities over time and figure out what went wrong in that situation and how can I learn and grow from that in the future so that I can be more effective in gospel witness? Yeah. Any other questions? Emmanuel.
2: Where, where do you you know, uh, when, when evangelizing different people, you know, the people are so um, tolerant. They're, 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 so, they're tolerant to everything, you know, every belief. And it's like, how do you break the wall? Um, you know, because sometimes people just automatically, their mindset today is, that's just your way of thinking. Uh-huh. You know, how do you, maybe you can just get some insight on how to break that wall because, I guess maybe sometimes you can't too, but, I run into that a lot, you know. Just, mm-hmm. This is just your way of thinking, and, they, and you're like in a box. I mean, Satan have people's minds today where, you know, this is this type of thinking, this is this type of thinking. That's just your way on how to get to God. Uh-huh. What would you say biblically, maybe some passages that, I don't know if you can off the back, but just can break, or break that wall? the spirit
0: you know Yeah, the Spirit of God alone regenerates hearts of sinners, and He does it through one instrument alone the Word of God. You know, you were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, by the living and enduring word of God, 1 Peter 1.23. You know, you were brought forth by the word of God, James 1.18, in regeneration. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10.17. The only instrument that saves people is the gospel message, and I can't save them. The Spirit of God has to regenerate them, the Bible is self-authenticating, meaning that my job is not to go around and try to convince people of the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible. The Spirit has to do that. I can't do that. It doesn't matter how convincing or evidential my arguments are, at the end of the day, if I've given you arguments and somebody comes along and gives somebody better arguments, it doesn't matter what I convinced you of. The Spirit of God has to do that work And he only does it through the gospel. So I'm just trying to be faithful to sharing the gospel with people. If they want to reject it out of hand, I'll just warn them. You say, well, no, I understand what you're saying. And you're saying, yeah, I'm sincere in my belief and you're sincere in your belief. And we all have our beliefs and, hey, whatever works for you. But the Bible's crystal clear that there are people who are sincere but are sincerely wronged. And they're going to get judged based on the truth, not based on their sincerity. You know, Paul says, I testify about them, that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Thinking that they have to establish their own righteousness rather than trusting the righteousness of Christ in Romans 10, 1 to 4. If you read that section, he says, my heart's desire, prayer to God for them, is that they would be saved. I testify, they're zealous for God, but it's a God of their own imagination. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. And God's not going to give them a pass card saying, guys, you were sincere. I mean, you guys were zealous. In John 16, Jesus says, a time's coming when people are going to be casting you out of the synagogues and throwing you into prison and thinking that they're serving God and doing that. I mean, what a Muslim bomber that goes into the plane thinks he's serving God. He's sincere. But he's sincerely wrong. God's not saying, look, you get a pass card because you were sincere. You were sincerely wrong, and Paul says, everybody's going to be judged by my gospel on the last day. There's one standard of truth by which everybody's going to be judged by, and that's what I try to tell people when they when come across that. No, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, definite articles. There is no other way to the Father except through me. There's one man and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If you don't come this way, you're not coming at all. Well,
2: and also, like, I had a conversation with some guys and we were talking you know, one guy he seems he seems like a professing Christian because I mean, even he was kind of like you know going around like that's just your way, and I'm like, you don't believe what the Bible teaches, you know. And I mean, I understand that it's the spirit that does it, but you know, Satan—he just, I mean, he's captured the mind of people today where they think you know it's kind of like a political thing where you know or oh, reason, we reason and they feel like they're being. Good. They feel like they're being, that's the right way to be. But I mean, I, mean, I know that the Spirit of God worked through it, but I just run into that so much. I run into that
0: type of mindset so much. Yep. Yeah. And you will increasingly. But it's just there's salvation and no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to bring them to the exclusivity of the gospel and help them to understand that there is one universal, absolute, authoritative, objective standard of truth by which all men are going to be judged, and it's the revealed Word of God. And if you're believing in something other than that, it doesn't matter how sincere you are in your belief, you're still getting judged according to God's standard of truth. There's only one Savior from sin, and it's Jesus Christ, and there's only one means through repentance and faith. And that's what I'm going to preach to them. And if they want to reject it or say, Ah, that's a bunch of nonsense. I don't believe that or this or that. I'm just going to pray that God would bring somebody else to to bring the gospel to that person. But I'm powerless to save anybody. So I don't walk away dejected every time I share the gospel and somebody says, Ah, that's just your way of thinking. Ah, that works for you. God's going to save all of his elect. Everyone for whom Christ died will be saved.
2: I mean, just, you know, sometimes, too, um, like in my Christian walk, I've seen there's been time where I wasn't maybe equipped enough because, you know, like how Paul went when he went, you know, I think it's into Athens, he went and he saw the different gods, but then he creatively, you know, obviously by the work of the Spirit, he said, you know, he he, he made a position where he was able to set the stand and make them understand better. And mm-hmm. sometimes we can help, you know, through God's Spirit, we can help people to see clearer because... It's just so much bad stuff out there whether it's, they're getting it from bad churches mm-hmm. bad prophets and sometimes you know god could use us to help them to see the scripture clearer because in many cases they don't see the scripture clear and so you just want to be able to be used by god and the more equipped you are the more you're able if the spirit will let if the spirit will have them to come to him uh-huh. the spirit is able to use you to bring them to a clearer understanding you know, So part of it is that we want to be equipped Absolutely, we want to understand what we're teaching yep. in a way that can help man you know, come to a clear understanding.
0: Absolutely. Every one of us should be growing in our understanding of the truth, our belief in the truth, and our submission and obedience to the truth by faith. The more we know the Word of God and live the Word of God, we're going to be more equipped and more effective to serve God. You know, everyone who cleanses himself from these dishonorable things will be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared and equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.21. You know, and then he goes on in that context, and he says in verse, um, you know, 22, now flee from youthful lusts. So we, we typically think of sexual lust, but in that context, it's the lust of wanting to argue and debate about truth if you study that context, flee from useful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. And now here's one of my favorite verses in one of the passages I go to so often. The Lord's bond slave must not be quarrelsome but kind to all able to teach so that assumes you know the word of God and you're able to clearly communicate it patient when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition that's my responsibility now here here's God's domain that I'm not going to try to get into which a lot of people try to get into if God perhaps may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil Having been taken captive by him To do his will That's people They're captive They're blind They're unable to understand And obey truth First Corinthians 2.14 Romans eight seven and 8 I can't change that But I can be faithful to verse 24 I can be patient Gracious Winsome Gentle Kind Correcting them But doing it with gentleness Able to teach And praying that God would grant them repentance That they'd come to a knowledge of the truth So that's our responsibility. So constantly praying for opportunities, constantly living a godly life, and constantly trying to grow in our understanding of the Gospel and our ability to live it and then clearly communicate it. And then just trust God with what He chooses to do rather than trying to manipulate results or becoming resentful. You know, I've got family members who I love dearly who are outside of Christ. But on the Day of Judgment, I'm lining up on God's side, not their side and i don't take those things lightly i weep over their soul in the thought of them perishing for eternity but the bottom line is if i'm thinking biblically revelation's clear that the saints in heaven are rejoicing in god's judgment of sinners not because they, they are sadistic or that they like to see but they lo- so love the glory of god and to see his truth and his character vindicated and I know that one day in my moral perfected state I'm going to rejoice in the damnation of sinners because it vindicates God's truth and justice and holiness even my own family members which is hard for me to grasp emotionally even now and that's what I'm going to teach my son son you better repent you better trust Christ because I'm lining up on God's side in the end and I want you to be with me for all eternity but you won't be unless you repent and believe Those are sober realities, but I'm going to be content and just let God be God, because the Judge of all earth will do right.
2: And that's what's so dumbed down now, you know, the the, the holiness of God. I mean, people don't people don't have a sense of the holiness of God. I mean, it's so the battle is so much harder for us. You know, when you have when you have a real Christian here, and then you have an unbeliever here, say the real Christian can bring the truth and the unbeliever can hear the truth and the word from victim. But then when you have another person that says they're a Christian mm-hmm. and you're a real Christian and you just have to, it's like, and the person might like, forget it. I mean, I just don't have anything to do with it. Yeah. Because you don't know what is true and uh-huh. it becomes so confusing. Uh-huh. It's a tactic
0: to muddy the waters yeah. that
3: Satan is using to throw you know people into confusion about what, mes- what message is true and there's so much noise
2: out there. Yeah. And i see it i mean you run into people and i mean the people are i mean obviously it's the spirit that works on them but you know us as christians i mean we just have to be wise in how we you know how we reach them because it's so much god. i mean i I mean when i became a christian i mean i went through this church that church and it's just so much god And i mean i just thank god for by his spirit that he he's guided me but I know that I've experienced so much garbage out there, mm-hmm. just so much garbage that you don't even know. And you could be very well sincere, but I mean, when there's just so much garbage, and, and the only only the Word of God is... And I mean, it takes so long to really understand how to, you know, separate truth from error. Mm-hmm. And how do you, you know, so how, how, do, how do we expect this unbelieving person to even do that when there's so much false prophets out there?
0: You rest and you trust in the sovereignty of God. He's going to save all of His elect. It's not ultimately up to me. I just want to be faithful to what God calls me to do. I'm not indifferent to that person's salvation. I'm broken over the fact that they're lost. I want to see them saved, but I'm not going to be angry at God or discouraged or depressed if I share the gospel and they reject it or don't believe it. I know that the 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 broad road to hell is broad. It's wide, and many are going to find it. And I recognize that reality, and God's sovereign, He's wise, His plan is perfect, and I'm going to trust Him. I just want to be faithful, to pray for the salvation of those I know, to live the gospel before them, to live a holy life that's set apart, and to preach the gospel faithfully, and to try to shorten the learning curve of other people that I had to go on. So where I sat in bad churches and learned a lot of error, I want to use that as fuel to thank God that He rescued me from that, and fuel to be more zealous to go and help everybody I can to grow so that I can shorten their learning curve so they don't have to go through all the sea of confusion that I went through.
2: And obviously it's God's will that you go through it. But to me, that, that, that fires me up, you know, to want to share the gospel. That's good. You know, because yeah. of that, because it's so much, you know, redeem the times, but the days are evil. I mean, that's just yeah. reality, you know. But if we have that, the more we have that understanding, the more we see the... Wickedness and the bad stuff out there gives us the fire, you know, to want to share the gospel because Paul, Paul seemed like he had that great desire as well because he knew there was so much stuff
0: that was wrong. Absolutely. He said, I'm jealous for you with a divine jealousy. You know, in second Corinthians eleven two, betrothed you to one um, you know, husband that I want to present you as a pure and chaste virgin, talking about the Corinthians. He had a jealous concern for the moral and doctrinal purity of the people that had been entrusted to his care. And that should be us. There should be a jealousy for truth, to protect truth, to promote truth, to defend it against error and all of those things, to bring people to truth. Taylor.
3: It's like it started overlapping, and that, that's often what happens, too, and I think what's important is to, like what Matt was saying, just remember to point out that there is one objective reality and truth, and that's in God's Word, yeah. and uh, try not to start fighting and getting in an argument about what's true and what's not, because yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a temptation. Yeah.
2: You can get, you can feel kind of frustrated, like you don't get it. it? Yeah. yeah, no, you on the,
0: yeah. Not the question, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you want a really good book on apologetics, I'd recommend a book called Biblical Apologetics by Clifford McManus. It's an excellent treatment of that that whole subject from I think a biblical perspective. I think too many people get off on that tangents and get sidetracked. Obviously, especially classical apologetics and evidential apologetics and stuff like that but even presuppositional apologetics at times becomes more philosophical than it does exegetical and textual and it reveals that we have a lack of trust in the sufficiency of scripture. That scripture alone is sufficient to be the instrument through which God saves people. So I I would recommend that book also Dr. George Zemeck wrote a book doing God's business God's way very short little book but it just kind of changed you to the the reality of the depravity of man and the gospel and the word of God being the only thing that can save them and only through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit and not getting sidetracked because most of that stuff when you get into apologetical debates oftentimes is a smokescreen argument from the other side to sidetrack you from wanting to deal with their accountability before God sometimes there is genuine questions and stuff like that but a lot of times it's just I don't want accountability and we already know from Romans 1 that everyone knows that God exists you know the professed atheist is deceiving himself he knows that God exists God tells me he knows that in Romans 1, 18 to 21, therefore he's without excuse, and he tells me that he's suppressing the truth that he knows in unrighteousness. The issue is not intellectual, it's moral. I don't believe because I don't want to believe because I know that what, that's what that means for me. I'm accountable to my creator now to live the way he designed me to live rather than living autonomously and independently the way that I want to live. So I don't believe there's a God. I take him and I put him into the chest and I close the chest and I sit on that and say, there's no God. And I actively suppress that truth, but I know that truth. And they know that truth.
3: Uh, I agree with you. Like, they can pull, they have this big box of arguments that they can pull out be you know, like, "Been set before you and then it's like you have to keep diffusing some uh-huh. kind of new bomb <laughs> that they put before you and now you're like, oh, which wire do I got to cut on this one? <laughs> you know, and, and like, like, that's happened to me before. And I look back on it, I've had some, some good moves and I've had some bad moves where I got distracted by all the different arguments and got, more, got away from, you know, biblical text and actually witnessing i think it's good to be able to understand like some arguments and uh use scripture to support your your arguments and defend the faith sometimes it's hard because they they just want distracting you i had this one kid that kept doing it over and over (laughs) again when i because he he appeared very sincere about his questions but i could tell it was like looking back on it it was Trying to distract me and not uh, actually deal with the issues at hand
2: is the hard issues. So yeah. One last one too. Yes. When you present the gospel to someone, and I mean they pretty much reject it. Uh huh. What you know, say you know, as a co-worker with you know, what, what would you say your reaction to that person and your interaction with that person should have changed? I mean, what, what yeah, you say?
0: I'm gonna address that next time. That's um, kind of what I'm gonna talk about next time and stuff, but. Um Yeah, so that you'll have to come back next time. But no, I mean it just it, it just depends on the situation. I mean I'm not gonna stop I'm not gonna be like embittered at them or like, you know, start treating them like in an ungodly way or something like that. I mean I, I, I grieve for their soul that they're so they're so lost and <laughs> that that they're rejecting the gospel. I mean, I'm not gonna keep casting my pearls before a swine, in Matthew seven six in the sense that If they're going to be violently opposed and it's going to create a debate or an argument in in the workplace or something like that and it's going to tarnish my witness, I'm not going to keep badgering them and I'm not going to disrespect them as a person and keep forcing them to hear what I want them to hear. I mean, if they've told me they don't want to hear it and they've rejected it, then I'll just respect that and I'll just live a godly life before them. I'll pray for them and pray that God would use another avenue or another means or bring circumstances in their life to bring them low and perhaps they'll come to me in that point of need or just look for another time where they might be softer or more sensitive to that but certainly not respond in an ungodly way at any point because now you just basically tarnished your witness you just showed them you're just like the rest of the world
1: People that have Real to you, it's more burning for the person you really want them to come to Christ. Yeah. They're rejecting it, and you know better that they don't, so. I think it's more of a prayer for them and you know, pray for the God to
3: yeah.
2: well, I, I feel like, cause I have one guy, I man. We, we, we went out and we were working together, and we went, we went, we took a taxi because we had to go take a patient somewhere else um, to court. And I mean, he and I just had a great conversation. And I was able to lay it down to him. And I mean, he just, he just, he just, no. I mean, he understood. There, was, there wasn't no misunderstanding yeah. here. I mean, he had a clear understanding of what it is. And he and he, he rejected I mean, I don't feel ill about him. But then, you know, sometimes just, you know, because, you know, I still see him. He's a cool guy and everything. Uh-huh. And so I'm like, you know, should I just. Be cool with them and I mean I don't have any. It's not personal, yeah. but my heart, you know, was you know, hey, he's made his bed. I mean, it's not personal. I mean, represent yeah. the gospel as a minister of the gospel, and he rejected. It. And so I'm just wondering, you know, because I see him and we kid around and everything, and it's like, do you just you know still kid around with the person and everything, although you know that the person has made their decision and they are where they are. You know, because you have family members too, you know, do you just, you know, because you always want to be trying to reach them to uh-huh. the gospel, but if they see it clear and they know it and they reject it,
0: I mean, well, if they're open to keep hearing it, I'll keep sharing it with them. Like Melissa's father, he, he passed away almost two years ago now, and he was an unbeliever when he passed away, but every time he came, he would share, he would listen to me and we would discuss the gospel, he would reject it outright every time. But he wasn't hostile. We could talk about it. So I just kept talking about it and kept praying for him. And sadly, he never came to Christ.
3: It's really nice to have his lines drawn very clearly. For
2: somebody's like, no I, no, I don't think so. Instead of kind of like throwing up smoke screens. And, yeah. This song was amazing. I mean, I was like in shock that the guy would. I mean, you think you're good. I mean, you know, I laid it down. Are you not a good person? You know, you've been through this, and you you don't meet the God's standard. And He understood that He didn't uh-huh. meet the God's standard. But, like, but
0: still, no, no. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just going to try to live a godly life before Him and look for opportunities to serve Him and love, and uh, look for other opportunities to share the gospel to see if He's open to it. And if He just tells me, "Hey, I don't want to talk about that anymore," or that that's it. You know, you're offending me. Okay. You know.
2: Yeah. No, he's not so I, I guess I, I
0: still, you yeah, you're not going to treat him as less than a human being. You, know? <laughs> you rejected the gospel, that's it for you. you know? so I'll I still try to run the door open. I'll
2: yeah. try to reach out to me, I remember how many times you probably
0: rejected
2: it before you I know for sure I did more
0: times than I can count. Yeah, absolutely Any other questions before we close? All right, let me just close this in prayer. Father, again, thank you for this time of fellowship around your truth. Thank you for just the clarity of your word. I pray that you would excite and really compel our hearts for the lost around us and ultimately for your glory to be put on display through the mighty power of the gospel and recognizing that it is. the power of God unto salvation. There is nothing impotent or lacking in the truth of your word, and I pray that we would have such deep, abiding conviction in the potency of your word and of the gospel that we wouldn't veer into other things, fads and trends, but we would hold fast to the gospel message and proclaim it in an undiluted and uncompromised fashion with boldness and yet with winsomeness and graciousness and that you'd give us all great opportunity, put people in our sphere of influence and in our path who desperately need to hear the gospel and give us a burden for those people and a passion to proclaim it faithfully, to see them saved and to see you ultimately glorified as you rescue people from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of your dear Son so that they too would proclaim your excellencies. We ask it now for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. I say
2: we have a in the other-